Well, Merry Christmas. May I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 this morning, Matthew chapter 1, as we uh, consider this wonderful little passage that we did last week, and we're going to continue on this week here as we think about the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew lays this out for us, and I trust God will bless us this morning. You want to have God's word open in your lap, I trust, as we hear from him. I do also want to put my plug in, uh, if I can, for our service tomorrow night. Uh, our Christmas Eve service is one of my favorite services of the year. We are simply going to gather. It's really kind of a, you know, a pared down service. We're going to sing a number of Christmas carols and throughout that time read the entire nativity story, take the Lord's Supper, consider God in his word, and it's just a special, wonderful time. I do hope you'll come tomorrow at uh, 5.30 as we celebrate the birth of Christ. And uh, while I'm, I'm making announcements, I, I do want to um, let you all know, and most of you already know this, that uh, Steve and Renee Rogers will be uh, leaving us shortly. Uh, where are they? They're somewhere around here. There they are. Um, uh, let's see if I can get Steve to cry up there. Um, uh, I think they'll be here next Sunday. I won't be, be here next Sunday, so I did want to uh, take a, just a special point of privilege, uh, if I can, and uh, thank Steve and Renee for their uh, many years of service here. Will you thank them? Um, of course, Steve, uh, six years ago, served on the, in fact, he was the chair of the pastor's search committee, so you largely have him to blame for me, Okay which may be one reason why he's leaving. He can't handle that blame anymore. I think I remember our first meeting with Steve as I came to interview, and he opened a three-ring binder that was like this thick. And if you, if you know Steve Rogers, that's who he is. He had, I don't know, an FBI background on me or something like that. Um, and uh, certainly he did everything he could to keep me from coming, but um, God prevailed, I think. Uh, certainly, uh, Steve, we love you. Of course, we Served as an elder here for many years. Renee served on church staff. And so certainly you all will be missed. And uh, God bless you out west. So now here uh, in Matthew chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 18. Hear now the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, 
and trust that you would be pleased to speak to us through it this morning. Uh, we, we are especially delighted this uh, Christmas time to consider the birth, the coming of our Lord and what he has come to do and who he is and what he does even now in our lives. And so help us, Father, as we just set aside this time to hear from our God, from our King, from our Creator. That you might speak to us and unfold to us afresh the mysteries of the Incarnation, the wonder of the birth of Christ, the majesty of your love and grace that sent Him. And so we come with hungry hearts and eager minds and ask through your Spirit that you would speak to us now. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there once was a boy who, by the age of five, had written an advanced concerto for the harpsichord. By age 10, he had published several violin sonatas and was playing, the, from memory, the best works of Handel and Bach. When he was 12 years old, he had composed and conducted his own opera, before the Austria queen in Vienna, where he was appointed at age 12 as the concertmaster over the Salzburg Symphony Orchestra. By the age of 35, when he died, he had written 48 symphonies and over 600 pieces of music. This man lived up to his name. Johannes Chrysostomus Wolfgangus Amadeus Theophilus Mozart. The tragedy of Mozart, however, is that though he achieved success and celebrity and wealth, when he died, he died impoverished, a forgotten young man. In fact, by his death, he had virtually no friends and no family. Only a handful would actually come to his funeral, and because of the snowstorm that was taking place that day, no one actually went to his burial. When they were asked, where is Mozart buried, no one knew. We don't know in to, to this day. So what you have is perhaps the greatest musical mind of all times, dead at 35 in an unmarked grave. It's a story, if you will, from riches to rags, a story of great reversal. Of course, there's many of these stories. For instance, take um, William uh, Durant, who started a little car company we call General Motors. And when he started this car company, the 50 people that joined him in the early days all became millionaires. But because of a poor decisions by Durant and, and uh, because of a kind of wasteful lifestyle, he lost his fortune, he lost his company, he eventually declared bankruptcy, and the last job he had before he died, he was managing a bully alley in Flint, Michigan, too poor to buy one of the several million cars that the company he created have built. Let me give you one more, perhaps the greatest riches to rags story. This one had everything, wealth, comfort. He was powerful, brilliant, had, had, had a, a, was surrounded with adoring servants, and he lost it all. He, he ended up living in poverty. 
and not just impoverished, he was hated by, by those who lived around him. Others would seek him out simply to use him. He was hunted down by the powerful. And eventually, in his early 30s, he was beaten, he was mocked, and he was publicly murdered by a maddened crowd. We call his name Jesus, as we saw last week. The angel came to Joseph, you shall call him Jesus, which is a common name. You remember that? But a common name full of meaning. Jesus is a compound word that simply means Yahweh saves, which is what the angel tells him there in verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so we considered that name last week and we rejoiced in this truth that Christmas is about salvation. Christmas is not simply a myth to warm our hearts about angel choirs and peace on earth and all all the rest. The story of Christmas is the story of what God has done to overcome my sin and your sin, that Jesus has come to save us. So I tell you, you, you could divide humanity into two groups, if you will. You could divide this entire room into two groups. One, you are either in your sin, or two, Jesus has saved you from your sins. That's what Jesus means. Yahweh saves. So the Christmas story is the birth of a Savior. But what's amazing is that his birth is not the beginning of his story. Because he's not simply just a Savior, but he is God himself. As you see there in verse 23, don't you? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means, Matthew's helpful for us here, God with us. You see, the Christmas story is a story of reversal of fortune. It's a story of riches to rags. That God himself, who lived in the splendor of heaven, became a man, became a human, became a baby. And as if that's not humbling enough, you, of course, remember how he came into this world, born in a village of Bethlehem, in which he was so overrun by People arriving for the census, there was no room for this woman in labor and her husband. And so to make the best out of worse, uh, the worst conditions, we putting the story together, though we're not explicitly told this, we think they found a stable. Which wouldn't be, by the way, a little a barn like we think of. It would be a, a shallow cave where they used to keep animals. In fact, I, as I try to tell you, I think every Christmas, erase from your mind your little nativity scene that you have set up. And we have, we have them all over the house. I'm not saying don't do nativity scenes, but that's not, doesn't, not so accurate as to what it was like. Get, get out of your mind the sentimental Hallmark card picture of the birth where there's fresh hay and clean animals. I don't know if you've been around a farm much, but they're generally not clean, okay? And, and it, it, it would have been filthy. There probably is not a little fire there. I don't think you build fires. In, I'm not a farmer, but you don't build fires in stables, I'm pretty sure, right? It, instead, what you have is you're surrounded by the stench of manure, the stench of animals. The ground is hard packed or perhaps even worse, muddied by recent rain. You could think, I trust, that Joseph must have done his best to find a soft place for Mary to lie. Perhaps as she labored, he held her hand. Maybe he quoted scripture to her, prayed her for her, cooled her forehead, shooed away animals. We're not sure if he's born in the daytime or 
the evening, but you can imagine a nighttime birth, as many of you have experienced that, but this one would be in a, a dark cave, dark night, air punctuated by Mary's cries of pain. I, I, I remember, as you do, uh, if you've had this experience, your first birth, first child was born. I remember the great excitement and anticipation. And it, I also remember the fear. There's a little bit of nervousness there. And the, the reason there's fear is it's, it's so new. Right? Um, by the time we had our seventh, the legger was telling the nurses what to do. Okay, So it wasn't new anymore. But that first child, right, it was... It, it, it was exciting and, and scary at the same time. And my wife, uh, uh, ref, if you know Legger, this makes sense to you, she refused any pain medicine because she likes her life to be hard. And, um, and so she said, no, no, I just want to experience this. And, and so here we are, we're giving birth. And, and one, but one thing that Legger had is she had, she had doctors nearby. And she had nurses. Right? And she had emergency care if she needed it. Well, Mary and Joseph, they didn't have any of that. Not, not even a midwife, not even a mother or a friend, just a frightened teenage girl delivering a baby into the calloused hands of a carpenter. If you read Luke's account, he simply says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. If they were back home, they would have celebrated the birth of a son. Most certainly, the proud parents would have called family, would have called relatives together, but there were no friends to congratulate them. There was, there was no family nearby. Mary and Joseph, they were simply alone. And so they swaddled the baby, we're told, and put him in a manger, which probably wasn't a box, but a place cut out in the, uh, the wall of the cave, hollowed out. You can imagine, I think, that Joseph would have cleaned out it the best he could, maybe put some fresh hay there. And, and there they placed the Son of God in a feeding trough. Quite a reversal, I would say. In fact, one author puts it this way. If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with a stench of manure and acrid straw made for a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood, the baby's limbs waving helplessly and his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. You see, God leaves behind the riches of heaven and took on the rags of humanity. They shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel is just another compound word. You hear the L at the end. That's the Hebrew word for God, L. Sometimes you hear Elohim, which is the plural form of God. And you see this often in, in Jewish names. So at the end of names, Daniel, Joel, Nathaniel, right? Uh, Samuel, Ezekiel, Bethel. You see it all the time. Sometimes it's in the beginning of the names. Elijah, Eliud, Eleazar. That L in the beginning simply means God. And Emmanuel is the Hebrew phrase for with us. So it's God with us. So who is this child? Well, we're told, right? We're, the answer is in the name. The, the, he is none other than God with us, which is just utterly astonishing, isn't it? 
I mean, I know it's familiar, but let's just take a moment to be amazed by the fact that this is God who has come to be with us. In fact, as John Wesley was dying, these were some of the last words on his lips. The best of all, he said, is God with us. And my hope is as Wesley died with those words on his lips, that you and I might live this Christmas season with them in our hearts. And so my hope is simply to consider each one of those three words, God with us. You didn't think I could make a whole sermon out of three words, but I can't. So here, here we go. Uh, ready? Um, so first of all is God. Consider God. Verse 22, Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. By the prophet. He's referring to a prophecy long ago, in fact 700 years prior to Jesus' birth, that Jesus fulfills God's promises. In fact, we see Matthew and the other gospel writers continually doing this, often reaching back into the scripture of old to explain what Jesus was doing in the present or would do in the future. So here he's quoting a very familiar passage, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. And it's in that day that Judah was ruled by a wicked man named Ahaz. And at this point in history, Judah is surrounded by their enemies. And, and it doesn't look good for Judah. It looks like they're going to be destroyed and Ahaz will be dethroned and, and uh, the Davidic reign will end there. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, not to rebuke him, but to encourage him. And, and the prophet comes to Ahaz and he says to him, uh, God speaks to him, says, Be quiet and do not fear, for I am with you. I am with you. In other words, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to see you through this trial. Okay? And, and, and Ahaz is given this great assurance, but he doesn't believe the prophet. He doesn't believe him. And so God says, okay, because you don't believe, I'm going to give you a sign that I'm with you. And so we read in verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and, and you will call him Emmanuel. Right? And Emmanuel means God with us. In other words, this is the sign, trust me, I'm with you to protect you during this time. So the question is, who's this child that's promised in Isaiah 7? Well, you read Isaiah 8, and you know what happens? A, a son is born to the prophet Isaiah. And at that same time, Judah's enemies are defeated. And so we think, well, is, is Isaiah's son, the, in, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 8, the promise fulfilled from Isaiah chapter 7? Well, not really, because certainly the, his son wasn't born from a virgin. And how can the normal birth of a son be a sign or a miracle? And so we, what we have to do is we have to keep reading, and we get to Isaiah 9, which uh, Ben quoted for us this morning, didn't he? And we get more details about the son. We learn a little bit more about the son that's promised in Isaiah 7. For unto us, we read, a child is born to us, a what? A son is given. So who's the son? And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of his peace, there is there will be no end from this time forth and forevermore. And so we're revealed that the Emmanuel of Isaiah 7 is the mighty God in Isaiah 9 and will have an eternal reign. So what's putting this all together, what we see is often happens in Old Testament prophecy, there's an immediate partial fulfillment of the prophecy that points to a more deep and full and complete fulfillment that is to come 
in the Messiah. And so Isaiah was encouraging all those who lived in his day to look down the corridor of history and see that a virgin would give birth to a son and fulfill God's promise to be with us. A virgin birth, we call it. Really a virgin conception, isn't it? Now, now I understand it's 2018. <laughs> and we're talking about virgins giving birth. And, and, you know, everybody, everybody pretty much loves the Christmas story. Right? Mary and Joseph's trek to Bethlehem, and no room at the inn, and the adoring shepherds, and you got these strange, you know, magi coming with, with all sorts of bizarre gifts. I mean, everybody loves that story. But the virgin birth, you know, we, you know the tendency today is, you know, let's, just, let's just kind of put that part aside. Right? Because it's very easy to think, okay, those are primitive people. They'll believe anything. Right? Aren't, aren't we all glad we know better? And, and when, I, when I think about this, and I know I share this story with you every other year, and I'm sure I'll continue as long as I'm here. I love this story. It's the story of C.S. Lewis, who's teaching a you know, professor at Oxford. And when another professor comes into his office, and there happens to be carolers in the courtyard below. And they're singing Christmas carols, praising God. And, of course, in the carols, they refer to the virgin birth. And the professor says to Dr. Lewis, he says, isn't it good that we know better than they did? In which C.S. Lewis replies, I'm afraid you'll have to explain. He says, well, isn't it good that we know that virgins don't have babies? And which Lewis looked at him in disbelief and said, don't you think they do that too? Isn't that the whole point, right? So listen, they knew where babies came from, right? They knew virgins don't have babies. So in Luke's account, the angel Gabriel comes to to Mary and he says, okay, uh, you're going to conceive a child, you're a virgin, you're gonna have a child. And Mary does not look at the angel and say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Oh, the true meaning of Christmas. No, she said, what are you talking about? What do you mean I'm gonna have a baby? How is that possible? Right, see, we, we, wanna, we, we just want to set that aside, get on with this story like the virgin birth is some, some unsightly mole that we just want to freeze off, on an otherwise really kind of beautiful story. But the, here's the problem, I think, is that the virgin birth is not just an appendage to the story of Jesus. It's the thread that weaves throughout the whole story, and to remove it is to unravel Christianity itself. What we believe we have, what the Bible tells us, is we have God in a crib. Well, two people through natural processes don't bring forth God. See, the virgin birth is the handle to the door that opens up the house of Jesus. And you can't come in and get acquainted with Jesus unless you, unless you turn the handle called the incarnation. You may try to climb through a window or you could shoot down a chimney if you like. But you're never going to know him unless you greet him at the door. And he says to you, uh, listen, everything that you need to understand about who I am needs to start here. That I am God in the flesh. I've been born from a virgin. If you, and therefore, if you want to reject the virgin birth... As many, I'm afraid, many, many pastors do today. It's a scandal, I think. If you want to reject the virgin birth, I don't think there's any point in proceeding any farther. 
Because all you're going to be talking about is an imaginary Jesus, not the real Jesus. The incarnation, that is God in the flesh, incarnate means to be in the flesh. What we have is we have 100% God and 100% man, and so he will forever be. He is the God-man for all eternity. Therefore, he was hungry and thirsty when he grew up. He groaned and weeped and suffered because he's a man. And at the same time, he, he knew men's thoughts. He exercised power over demons. He walked on water and, and worked all sorts of miracles. Why? Because he's God. You say, well, how's that possible? <laughs> I don't know. Right? You don't know. We don't know. But what we do know is that the Holy Spirit was involved. You see there at the end of verse 18 that uh, we, we read she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. In case we missed it, he repeats it there in verse 20, doesn't he? There at the very end, he says, uh, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. This is the angel speaking to Joseph. For what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In fact, in, in Luke's account, once again, Mary asks the angel, How can this be? How can I, a virgin, have a baby? Answer, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So let's be clear. We're not in any way, as Islam misrepresents Christianity, saying that the Holy Spirit took the male role in procreation. It's not what's happening here at all. Instead, what we have something that seems far more similar to what we saw in Genesis, when the Holy Spirit was what the agent of creation, and once again, we see him to be the agent of creation in Matthew 1 in the conception of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit in some unexplained way made the preexistent second person of the Trinity into a human being. J.I. Packer, <laughs> uh, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, writes, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, the second representative head of the human race, and that he took humanity without loss of deity. So that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noise and needing to be fed and changed and taught like any other child. And the more you think about it, he says, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. He's God with us. Who is Jesus? This is where you start. He's God. Which is, of course, the testimony of Scripture, isn't it? First Timothy 3. He is God manifested in the flesh. Colossians 2. In him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. John 8. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham, I am. This is why the Magi came. And what did they do? They worshipped. This is why Mary Magdalene on Easter morning fell down on his feet and did what? She worshipped him. It's why Thomas there will bow before the resurrected Lord and say, my Lord and my God. It's why they killed him. Why they put him on a cross. 
See, they didn't kill Jesus for being a miracle worker. They didn't kill him for being a nice man. They didn't kill him for being a, 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 a paragon of virtue. They killed him for blasphemy. You do understand it's blasphemous to say you're God, unless it's true, as it was in Christ's life. In fact, look back up here in verse 21. I know we covered this verse last week, but see that? You, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, and I love this little pronoun here, his people from their sins. He doesn't say he'll save God's people from their sins, but he'll save his people from their sins. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we constantly are reading that God is planning to save his people. God's going to save, salvation is coming for God's people, for God's people, for God's people. And we get here, we begin the New Testament, and we we read, you'll call him Jesus, not for God will save, uh, for he will save God's people. He's going to save his people. Jesus is inserted where God's name should be. The, see, the, the, the baby born to Mary and Joseph is God. Now, now I'm just, <laughs> I mean, imagine what that would be like. Now, I, I don't know. I have baby on the brain, and that's kind of what I, I'm always going with. And, and I think, what would that be like as a father? Of course, Matthew's account's all about Joseph, isn't it? Being the father to God. I mean, I think that'd be very difficult. Don't you think your son is Emmanuel? How do you do that? I mean, I've read, by the, I've read all the books on, on, on raising children. I find raising children very challenging. I don't know. Maybe you got it nailed down. I need some help. I've read Dobson's Bringing Up Boys. I've read Wilson's Standing on the Promises. I've read Trip Shepherding a Child's Heart. Who wrote the book on raising God? I, I don't know. I haven't read that one. Right? And this is what Joseph... In fact, it was a custom from age 3 to 12 that the father would pass on down the religious traditions, impart the uh, religious laws and customs to the child. Could you imagine teaching the prophecies to the one of whom the prophet spoke of? Could you imagine explaining the law to the one who would never break the law, who would perfectly fulfill the law, who in fact gave the law? Could you imagine teaching the messianic psalms to the Messiah himself. I mean, in some sense, it, it would be easy, right? He's never going to break the fifth commandment, right? He's always going to honor mom and dad. But it's probably a little intimidating, right? You don't want to mess this one up. You're raising God himself. The eternal God has become a human. The creator has become part of creation. Please understand this is the, one of the essential claims of Christianity. This is the meaning of Christmas, It's not about shepherd boys and angel choirs and manger scenes and wise men. All that's wonderful. I love it all. But Jesus is God in the flesh, and all of Christianity needs to be understood through that lens. So if you want to know what God is like, well, study the life of Jesus. Remember when when Philip came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Remember what Jesus said to him? Have I been with you so long, Philip? How can you say, show us the Father? For if you have seen me, you have what? Seen the Father. Right? You've already seen the Father. You see, in Jesus we come to know God. God's not an idea. God's not a force. God's not an abstraction. He's a person, and his name is Jesus. Right? And because of that, because Jesus has come and he is God and man, Jonathan Edwards said long ago, you have in Jesus the combination of usually opposite excellencies in one person. For instance, Edwards explained, he is tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, 
humility without the slightest lack of confidence, unhesitating authority with a complete lack of self-absorption, unbending convictions without the slightest lack of approachability, power without insensitivity, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without legalism, passion without prejudice. Edward says, nothing he does falls short. In fact, he is always surprising you and taking your breath away because he's so incomparably better than you could imagine. These are the surprises of perfection, he says. And so what you do is when you look at Jesus, he, he draws you to him, doesn't he, Christian? He, he, he does something in you as you study his life and consider what he has done and, and who he is. That in him we're looking at God. Just as you can't look at the sun directly, I mean, it'll burn your eyes out. You need, you need a lens to see the beauty and the majesty and the power of the sun. So when we, when we look at Jesus, we're seeing the majesty of God through the filter of humanity. And, and that ought to change us. It ought to draw us and conjure up within us a love and a delight for him. Now, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. <laughs> you're thinking, this is, this is all a little too much. Right? Uh, this is a hard pill to swallow. Uh, there was a man named Jesus who walked around 2,000 years ago, and he's none other, none other than the creator of God. That's, that's difficult to believe. Yeah, I know. I think that's the point. That something so amazing and unthinkable happened in Jesus. By the way, this is the testimony of those who lived with him. In fact, some of the last people who would believe that a human being can become God were, were the monotheistic Jews. The Easterners, the Eastern religions, they're, they're pantheists. They believe, you know, God is a force in everything. They always believed that there are occasionally these avatars, they called them, that were manifestations of the God force. They wouldn't have any trouble with this. The Greeks, by the way, they weren't pantheists, they're polytheists. And in their religion, gods were always dressing up as humans and coming down and causing all sorts of mischief. It's why when Paul and Barnabas were performing miracles, they, they, called, they thought they, it was Zeus and, and Hermes, and they bowed down to worship them. Right? The, the only people that, that probably in the world who wouldn't believe that a person was God would be the only monotheists in the world at the time, and they were the Jewish people who believed in a transcendent God, and somehow something happened, and they, this is history, it's not even the Bible, something happened that a group of monotheistic Jews looked at this man Jesus and started calling him God and started worshiping him, this man, as God. And more than that, these are the very people who lived with him. They lived with him. Now listen, if I wanted to convince people I was God, I would not start with my family, right? I wouldn't start with people who knew me. You know, you know all the, I don't know, maybe you're one of these people, all the people who worship Elvis, hopefully you're not, that's a little weird, but you know, the, the Elvis worshipers, I'm pretty sure none of them lived with him, right? They saw him on television, they saw him on the stage, right? He was distant. No, these are the very people that spent time with him. Day after day after day, they lived with him. And what could possibly conclude, get, reached, get them to conclude that this man they are living with day after day for years is none other than the creator God himself? What happened? What happened? That's not even the Bible. That's history. This happened. What happened? Why did they conclude that? Well, my friends, the baby grew up and he was killed. And three days later, 
according to their testimony at least, he got up from the dead as he had promised. And all of a sudden, all over Israel, and in fact, all over the Roman world, there were these Jews running around the place, sacrificing everything and shouting to everyone who would hear, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. Now, I know I'm getting ahead of myself. Come back in April, we'll cover this, right? But this is what, something changed in them. And I'm telling you, the only answer to the data as un- unbelievable as it sounds, is that he must be God himself. God with us. With us. Point number two, he's with us. We will pick up speed here. You see, the incarnation doesn't teach that God exists. We already knew that when you read the Old Testament. But the incarnation brought God near God with us. That's, that's staggering in light of the Old Covenant. Because remember when God would occasionally appear in the Old Covenant? It wasn't usually the most comforting experience. It wasn't sweet and nice and friendly. It was usually terrifying. So he appears to Job in the form of what? A hurricane, a tornado. He appears to Abram in the form of a smoking pot of incredible heat. He he appears in the tabernacle as unapproachable brilliance that sends everyone running away from him. In fact, in the great appearance of God at Mount Sinai, when he gathers the Israelites there to enter into a covenant with them, the mountain is what? It's quaking. It's covered in smoke. There's fire. There's thunder. There's lightning. The message is very clear, right? It's not difficult to discern. God is saying, stay back. In fact, it was at Mount Sinai that the origin of the office of prophet began because they all looked to Moses and said, we don't want to talk to him. You go talk to him and come back and tell us what he said. We want to stay away from him. I mean, the idea was to stay away. And now we have this this Jesus who the Bible says is God with us, God who has come near to us, which is why the religious people of the day had such trouble with him, why they think he's crazy, because he keeps teaching these stories, like there was a man who had a hundred sheep, and one of them was lost, and he left the 99 to go find the one, and when he found it, he grabbed it and threw it upon his shoulders, and with great joy, returned rejoicing, saying, I have found the lost, the lost has been found, come celebrate with me, and they knew he was talking about God. Well, God doesn't do that. He told a story of a man who had two sons, right? And they said, wait a second, God doesn't run. God doesn't, God doesn't, God doesn't hug. God doesn't cheer. God doesn't go out and, and embrace the wayward. God doesn't kiss. God doesn't celebrate like this. God doesn't run to us. And Jesus says, oh, yes, he does. Because I am him. And that's exactly what I'm here to do. I am here to draw near to sinners. And do we not see this throughout the life of Christ? I mean, take Luke's gospel, for example. In Luke chapter one, he is with the humble to exalt them. In Luke chapter two, he's with the waiting 
to honor them. In chapter 3, we find him with the repentant to welcome them. In chapter 4, he's with the sick to heal them. In chapter 5, he's with the sinners to call them. In chapter 6, he's with the poor in spirit to bless them. In chapter 7, he's with the dead to raise them. In Luke chapter 8, he's with the demonized to liberate them. In chapter 9, he's with the hungry to feed them. In chapter 10, he's with the self-righteous to correct them. In chapter 11, he's with the proud to humble them. In chapter 12, he's with the anxious to counsel them. In Luke 13, we see he's with the faithless to weep over them. In chapter 14, he's with the outcast to host them. In chapter 15, he's with the lost to seek them. In chapter 16, he's with the burdened to help them. In chapter 17, he's with the lepers to cleanse them. In chapter 18, he's with the blind to heal them. In chapter 19, he's with the faithful to reward them. In chapter 20, he's with the skeptics to answer them. In chapter 21, he's with the widows to affirm them. In chapter 22, he's with the disciples to protect them. In chapter 23, he's with sinners to die for them. And in Luke chapter 24, he's with the weary and the scared to conquer death for them. He is God with us. And all the Old Testament saints and all the Old Testament believers would look today at your privilege, Christian, and say, why is this not the most amazing reality in your life? We heard over and over again, stay away. Stay back. And now God has come and he says, draw near to me. Be with me. Come and spend time with me. How is, how is that not the central reality to our lives? Because my friends, it wasn't just when Jesus walked this earth that he had come to be with you. He still comes to be with us because you get to the end of Matthew's gospel and he ends right where he began, right before the ascendant Jesus goes up into heaven. Does he not say to his gathered apostles, surely I am, what, with you always. I'm with you always, even to the very end of the ages. See, this Christmas season, may we just put this in our heart, God is not far off and distant. He's with us. He's with us. He's with you, Christian, through his spirit. And, you know, some, for most of us, Christian, uh, Christmas is going to be, you know, it's filled with family. Some of your family's already here, friends, But for a few of us, Christmas is difficult. For a few, Christmas is a time of loneliness. Loved ones have been taken from us. And there there might be some here. Uh, You might know someone who are are tempted to to kind of just be filled with sadness, thinking, you know, just imagine everybody everybody else is is surrounded by the, you know, warm, twinkling lights and family and, and, and laughter and all the rest. Right? And they're just having the, the Norman Rockwell Christmas, and, and, and you're just sitting here alone. By the way, that, that rarely happens. Let's just be, get real for a minute. I, last Christmas, we had 17 puppies that we were cleaning up after, and I had six of my eight kids wake up with strep throat, okay? So it's not always figgy pudding and laughter, okay? Sometimes you're just trying to endure, okay? But, but even, even in the good times, listen, if you're tempted to loneliness, Remember what Christmas is about. Christmas is that Jesus has come to be with you, that he would approach you through his spirit. He's not far off and distant. In fact, he's going to be with you forever. 
You see, Christ dies for sinners. He's raised from the dead for sinners. And if I were to ask you, why did Jesus die and raise from the dead? You, most of you would say, well, he did that to forgive us, to forgive us. Well, of course, you'd be right. But the question is, why do you want to be forgiven? Why do you want forgiveness? Why has he come to forgive you? Well, it's to bring us to himself, to bring us to God. So Paul would write in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, God's son, born of a woman, there's the incarnation, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive, you know what it is? Adoption. So that he redeems us. He came. He was born. Why? So that he might, you might receive adoption through his redemption. Forgiveness is not the goal. In other words, God is the goal. God is the gospel. And he has come that we might be with God forever. We're going to dwell with him forever. We read in Revelation verse 3 in chapter 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, you know this, don't you? The dwelling place of God is where? With man, he will dwell with them. He will dwell with them. God with us. Now here's the application. Listen, if Jesus has gone to such extent to be with you, what are you doing to be with him? What are you doing to draw near to him? How close are you to him, Christian? How much do you sense his presence? How much do you pursue him? Because often, listen, and I say this too, you know, I wish I had more time for the word or more time for prayer or more time for service, right? We say we wish we could do this. And what, what we really mean is, is that it's going to cost us. We're going to have to give up something in order to do these things, right? It might cost us a couple hours a week. And, and, and yet, here's my, my encouragement to you. Whatever it costs you to draw near to Jesus, it's nothing compared to what it cost him to draw near to you. And so you and I, we need to learn to fight our way through anything that's keeping us from him. He came from heaven to earth to be with you. Can't you get up an extra 30 minutes that you might draw near to him and be with him, that you might know of this glorious presence, God with who is it? Us. Us. Lastly, we turn to that little two-letter word, us. Notice he doesn't say, God with all. God, but God with us. So who's the us? Who's the us? Now, if, if you're not a Christian, you might be tempted to think, well, the us are the really religious people. The us are the really moral people, the good people. And please understand that, that everything about Christianity says, no, that's not who he's with. In fact, you le- read the story of Jesus, he's never with the religious people, I'm afraid. He's always finding the repentant people. The people who are broken of their sin. See, it, G- God doesn't draw near to the people who are saying, okay, I've done this and I've done that and I've done this, therefore you owe me, you should accept me, you should answer my prayer, I've earned this. No, he, he, what he draws near to are the people who say, you have no reason to accept me, but will you give me mercy? May I have mercy that I might be with you. One of my favorite pastors says often, 
to come to Christ, all you need is nothing. But most people don't have it. Because what we do is we come to him with our arms full and say, this is all I've done. This is all the things. This is how I was a father. I paid my taxes and all the rest. This is what I've done. Certainly, certainly that's good enough. Certainly that's good enough for you to accept me. We come with our arms full, right? And, and Jesus says, no, I'm not looking for people who come with, with their record. I'm, coming, I'm looking for people who come with a plea for mercy, who recognize they have fallen short, recognize I've come to die for sinners, and will, will come to me and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he says, those are the people that I draw near to. Those are the people that I save. I recently read a story of a man named Thomas who was a uh, seminarian out in Los Angeles. And one afternoon he walked out of the library and he noticed that in broad daylight a gang of people uh, beating up an old homeless man. And so Thomas went over there and he told this gang to quit it, stop it. And believe it or not, they did. And so he's, he's talking to this homeless man, and about a minute later, he gets hit in the back of the head with a brick and a, a severe cut on, the, on, on his back of his ear, and the gang descended on him, and they started kicking him and hitting him as he laid there in the ground, stole everything he had, and then took off. Someone called an ambulance, and they came and they picked up Thomas, but they thought Thomas was a gang member, but it was just one of them. And so they did very little to help him. They told him to stop complaining about his ear. They, they promised him that his ear would never completely heal. They dropped him off in the hospital. They gave him 28 stitches and then sent him on his way. But he didn't have a wallet. He didn't have a cell phone. Didn't have a computer. Didn't have any money. And so he had to go back in the hospital and say, can I, uh, I, I, can't get, I can't get back home. So they gave him $10. He took a cab ride back to seminary. And that's the end of the story, by the way. There's no, no, no wonderful end to it, I'm afraid. But there's something about that story that, that reminds me of Christmas. The story of a sacrifice for those who actually offer very little in return. See, what, what we've done is we've idealized Chris, Chris, Christmas. We've sanitized it for, for consumers who want a little bit of Christmas cheer, want a little holiday spirit. But I'm telling you, Christmas is not all that pretty. I mean, it's amazing. It's un unbelievably good. But it's not sentimental. It begins in an animal shelter as a peasant girl cries out in labor, giving birth. And it, and it ends on a blood-soaked cross where that child grows up and gives his life. It's a story of sacrifice. It's a story of riches to rags. God coming from heaven to be with us. Why? So that he might die for us. So we can call him God with us. But I think in some sense, couldn't we call him God instead of us? What I mean is he came to take our place on that cross. In fact, the prophet who promised his birth in chapter 7 said in chapter 53 of this coming son, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He takes our place. He bears our sin. But the glorious thing is that's not the end of the story. The story's not a tragedy. He left the tomb as the resurrected Lord. He didn't stay poor, but ascended back to heaven, to his throne in heaven. And the question is, how do we respond to all that? How do we respond to Jesus? 
Because I feel like Christmas time is kind of a time where many people kind of pay him lip service. Christmas may be a time where we reaffirm our lukewarm attachment to Jesus. And yet if you know the real Jesus, you can't respond to him with a tepid, in a tepid way. It was John Stott who said, there's, when Jesus walked this earth, there's only three responses to Jesus. Only three. You, you were either terrified of him and ran away. Or two, you hated him and you wanted to kill him. Or three, you worshipped him and you gave your entire life to him. Right? You either run or you hate him or you give him everything. But you can't have the relationship that so many people want to do with an annual nod of approval in his direction, a thumbs up to Jesus at Christmas time, and then we get on with the important things in our life. We get on with the rest of our life. He doesn't allow for that lukewarmness. He doesn't allow for that tepid response. My prayer is that there might be some here who as they consider who he is and what he has come to do, that you would perhaps today for the very first time surrender your life to him in faith. That you would worship him and serve him and seek him with all your heart. That you too may experience the glories of God with us. As I said, some died with that on their lips. May we live with it in our hearts. Our Father, we are thankful for our King, our Lord, for your Son, who has come to be with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. I pray that, Father, in your kindness to us, that he would be with us in a special and powerful way this Christmas season. That we would not be passive, but that we would intentionally draw near to him that he might draw near to us. We thank you that God has come here, that God desires fellowship. God will be with us forever. Let that occupy our hearts, that we have confidence to enter into his presence. May we not neglect those great privileges that he has come to give, that we might be yours and yours forever. We pray for those here, Father, who perhaps yawn over these truths and just want to, want to watch the game or get on with lunch. Father, will you not, in your kindness to them, just help them understand the majesty of the truths of Christmas compared to the mundane things of this life that determining who you are and how to respond to your son is the most important reality in life. And that you would even perhaps in your grace to them, win them over today, that they might see you, you might call them, speak to them, and they might see the Lord Jesus as he truly is, not simply a good man or a wise teacher, but he is God in the flesh who has come to redeem. And so, Father, we thank you for a Merry Christmas. We have much as Christians to be merry for, for our Lord has come, for our Lord is near. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we join in singing.